I'm sure God will bless us. Lovely to see some visitors too and to have you with us today. That's really special. We've been having a series on Isaiah from chapters 1 through to 39 and uh, this is where we're at today. We're going to look at chapters 28 through to 31 and God will bless us. To me, the, the great note of praise through the week was that lovely word about young Saley. Did you get that? Did you get that? Do you know, when she was born, I went into a $2 shop and I found a money box to give to Dan and Danella. And it wasn't just a money box because they normally have sort of the notes, $10, $5.50. This one had for your wedding. And I gave it to them with 20 bucks in it for your wedding. And now I just feel such a, a wonderful sense of joy to know that um, they've got every prospect of that. Whereas a few months ago, they wondered. For those of you who don't know, young Saley was born a few months ago and it was thought that she had a, a, a kind of a syndrome which meant that she had no immunity and, and uh, the prospects were really bad. Well, the news has come through this week that she's got that gene as a carrier, but it, she doesn't have it herself. And I, look, I tell you, I was just praising God through the week. Some of you may have been puzzling why we keep asking for Mohan to have a godly wife. Mohan is this Indian evangelist who is from a non-Christian family. None of his family are Christians. For him to have a wife to be accepted by his family is the hardest possible thing. Because caste system, and he's from a high caste in India, the caste system is so strong that if he were to just marry the, the, the most godly young person that he sees, young girl he sees, and her family and his family rejected him. Because in India, he brings his wife home. They don't set up separate homes. They'll be together, and she will be in the home with the family, and they would make her life absolutely awful if they didn't accept her. Now, I don't know whether some of you remember that when Kamal from Nepal came here, that's exactly the story with him because he married a girl who was not of the caste and his father absolutely refused any food that the girl prepared. She wouldn't, he wouldn't accept any, even a cup of water that she presented to her father-in-law. So that's the kind of problem that uh, our young friend Vijay has in terms of finding a godly wife. So when you read that there, don't think it's just that he can't find a wife, but he can't find the kind of Christian wife who's, who will be acceptable by his family. Not easy, very difficult task for him. Let's pray. Lord, as we take your word in our hands, we ask that our hearts will be responsive. You spoke to your people so long ago through Isaiah. You continue to speak to us today through Isaiah in your holy word. We know, and we said last week, that the things that were written aforetime are written for our learning, but they're also written for our encouragement and instruction. And we pray that our hearts will respond, that we'll not just say, well, that was then, and we are now, and we live in a different world. But what we do know is that the principles of Scripture are universal. They continue on, and we just ask that you help us today. Bless our children downstairs. Thank you for those who are ministering to them. We pray that they'll have great joy and pray for our little ones, that they'll grow to know you 
and grow to become like Jesus. And we thank you for those who are helping them do it. For those who can't be with us today, we do pray that you'll be with them. And especially, Lord, that you'll bless them. But now we are here and we just wait on you and your spirit to guide us and help us as we look into your word. In our Saviour's name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been looking at um, Isaiah over these past weeks and some of you will say, oh, here we go again. Well, some weren't here. And if you want to understand Isaiah, you need to read 2 Kings chapters 16 to 21 and 2 Chronicles chapters 26 through to 32 because that's the historical setting in which Isaiah was speaking. It was a, an international circumstance as well. Uh, the dominant power had been Egypt, and it had been the one that had dictated an awful lot of things. But Assyria was now threatening. And as they began to move south and began to overrun various countries and nations and, and put their power and, and do all sorts of things, Israel, which is down in here, was very threatened by all of these things. They were a little bit like meat in the sandwich, as you can see. And Cush was another country that had been involved with, uh, with attacks through this area. In the background, Babylon is starting to rise. And so these are the kind of circumstances in which Isaiah is writing. Now we could bring that into our modern day and we've had a powers that were and are no longer, for example, Great Britain. Uh, we've had powers that were and are waning like Russia, although Russia, the Soviet Union, but that's sort of starting to show its uh, teeth again. And we've got people like China that's rising and, and all of these circumstances that were then, and Australia is a bit like Israel, we're in the middle, we're meeting the sandwich. Do we go with the Yanks or do we go with the Chinese or can we have both and uh, who do we look to to help us? if circumstances dictated. And that was the exact issue that faced the people of God in those days. Now last week we, we, we looked at what Isaiah was saying and it simply illustrated these two great principles that there are righteous people who live by faith. They are the people who no matter what the circumstances continue to trust in God, who continue to walk in obedience to him and continue to look to God to help them. But we also know that there's a second principle illustrated by what we looked at last week, and that is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against every conceivable kind of wickedness. And so as Isaiah was speaking, that's what he was saying. He was looking at nations around. He was looking at even at those who claimed to be God's people. And he was showing that God saw what they did and God would judge them for what they were doing. And God's wrath was revealed. So these are two great principles that really illustrated what we looked at last week in chapters 22, or chapters 15 through to 21. Oh, in, sorry, in those chapters that we've got there, 22, 27. But we're moving on today and we now see that there's two more chapters to look at. But here again are two very important principles of the scripture. Do we live our life by our own thinking and planning? Do we live our lives saying, well, I know best what's good for me? Do we think that we're in control of our own destiny? Or have we understood that our God is sovereign and the instruction in Scripture is absolutely clear? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. So secondly... In all of your ways, acknowledge him, 
and God will make your path straight. In other words, he will open doors and he will make the pathway for you just as you would want it to be. Unfortunately, there's an alternate way. And the alternate way is a way that seems right to you and to me. But the end of that way is death. And we've got choices to make. And those choices are like crossroads. We either go our own way or we go God's way. We only trust in God or we think we can do it with our own ideas. And that's really the background and what we're looking at today in these chapters in Isaiah. So we look at it and read it and say, well, there's a lot of that stuff I can't really grasp. But just keep in the back of your mind these two great principles. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. That's the scriptural direction. And secondly, in all your ways, acknowledge God. And if we do those two things, then we can be absolutely confident that we're living within the will of God. But if we think we can plan, and we're then asking God to bless what we've planned and what we've thought's the right way and the right thing to do, we're asking God to be a rubber stamp. It's all us. It's not God. And that's what God is reacting to through Isaiah in these circumstances. Now, here's the circumstance. Judah, as I said, was caught between Egypt and Assyria, those great powers. Assyria was aggressing, uh, an aggressor. It was challenging. It was coming. Egypt appeared to be a possible ally to help Judah to withstand them. Assyria had already conquered many small nations, had already overrun Samaria or the northern kingdom. And if you can remember from last week, the Assyrian army chief was actually standing outside the walls of Jerusalem and he was making demands of King Hezekiah. In chapters 28-31, Isaiah is instructed to pronounce a series of woes. Well, it's all very well for me to stand on a soapbox and say woe to China or woe to Vietnam or woe to Iraq or woe to this or that or the other. But really what God is saying is much more than that. And I like what the, the New International or the New Living Translation says, destruction is certain for. If I simply say woe, well, you could just say, oh, well, that's Bill sounding off again. But when God says destruction is absolutely certain for, and there are a whole series of woes here. Now you'll remember, those of you who are here, that when Lindsay spoke on chapter 5, that there were a whole series of woes that God spoke in chapter 5. And they were about his people and their attitudes and their things. But now this is broader. Here's a whole series of woes. And the first one is about Samaria. Now Samaria was the capital of that northern kingdom of Israel. And I want you to get the picture here because what's really happening is that Isaiah is standing in Jerusalem. And he's looking to the north and he's saying destruction is certain for Samaria and the whole people of Israel. Well, everybody in South was saying, clap, good on it. That's exactly what should happen to them. They deserve it. Well, we need to understand that when Isaiah is pronouncing this woe or this destruction that was absolutely certain for Samaria... It's because God has his opinion. And the reason was that they were deluding themselves. They were saying, we are Samaria. 
Look at us. We've got a beautiful, fertile country. We've got a beautiful place. This is a crown of glory. Our Samaria, our capital city, and all around us, we, well, they had some reason from a human point of view to say so. Because that's what it looked like. Well, that's what it looks like today. It is beautiful. It is fertile. It's well watered. And it was absolutely wonderful. In contrast, that's what Judah looked like. The wilderness of Judah, hardly a blade of grass. Certainly no shrubs. Certainly no trees that you could look at. And so here is Samaria saying, aren't we good? Aren't we special? Hasn't God done something really good for us, giving us? And so like drunken revelers, all they ever, all they ever spoke about was our Samaria our crown of glory and God sees it as sin God sees it as pride and he will address that sin and pride as he always does because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble God always opposes pride they didn't realize in God's eyes they were like a fig ready to be plucked and eaten because God would deal with them. The reason is that they'd really lost sight of the Lord. Their whole confidence was on their city and their buildings and their position and their beauty and all that fertility and all that sort of stuff around them. They didn't realize that what you need to truly see is beyond the external and understand that God is the only one who is a glorious crown. The, it is God who is that beautiful wreath. God is the only one who is a source of strength. It's not who you are, what you know, what you can do, where you live, what you have. None of those things. Your house, your assets, none of those things. It's God. And our focus needs to be totally on him. And the sad, sad thing was that it was their leaders that were failing and they were drunks as well. And they were staggering around, befuddled with wine, God says. And yet when Isaiah began to speak, this is what they said. Whoa, what? who is this trying to teach? Who is he trying to teach this fellow Isaiah? For to whom is he explaining his message? Is he, does he think we're still in the kindy class? A, B, C, D, E. Do... do does Isaiah, does God still treat us like we're in kindy? The thing is that they would not listen to God's word. They were refusing to hear what God was saying to them. And that's a deadly dangerous thing. And God says, okay, well if you won't listen to me, then you'll have to listen the hard way. And what you're going to hear is a foreign language foreign people who are telling you to do exactly the same exactly the same do this do that in other words they're going to be sent off to Assyria they're going to be taken captive they're going to be sent to foreign lands they won't be able to understand what's being said to them Instead of hearing a clear, vibrant, powerful message from God, they're going to hear all this stuff in another language. But you see, God's been saying to them, 
this is the resting place. This is my land. This is the land I'm giving you. This is the place where I want you to rest. This, but no, they would not listen. And when you don't listen, then it becomes from God this statement, do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on, the very things they were objecting to. So they would go backwards and fall backwards, be injured, they'll be captured, snared. You see, when you live your life without God, you're in trouble. What really happened was this. This is what King says. Second Kings, the history says, The Lord, through his prophets and seers, said, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. So the people of Israel, Samaria, were taken from their homeland and into exile in Assyria. And at the time of writing, they were still there. See, God doesn't speak with no intent. God keeps his promises. Well, what then happened was that Isaiah, having spoken about Samaria, then looks around him into the people in Jerusalem, and, and this is what he says. You're scoffers. You're boasting about your schemes. You'll be saying, With an, when an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, that's the Assyrians, it can't touch us. Because we've got, we've got resources. We've got an army. We've got an ally. We've got, a, and they were saying, it's a bit like kids playing, my father's a policeman. And if you do what you, I'll tell my father. Well, it's a lie. But your aim is to scare the other kids so they won't bully you. Funnily enough, when I used to go to Korea, on the first time that I was there, they took me to the border between South Korea and North Korea. And you stand on the border there and you look across into North Korea and a lot of funny things happen. There's a bank of loudspeakers that are absolutely enormous and they can sound into South Korea for about 15 or 20, 20 Ks. They're so big, so loud. They've got a huge, great bank of these, uh, these loudspeakers. And, and over the loudspeakers, they're announcing... American pigs go home, American whatever, capitalists go home, um, and trying to tell the people of South Korea how bad the Americans and others were. The trouble is on the South Korean side, they've got the same kind of speakers. And what they say is, come south, we've just made our 10 millionth car, come south and enjoy it, come south. And so these two competing forces are across the border from one side to the other. But then you go to the very border and you look into South Korea and look at North Korea. Wow, you see this big building there. And you see another building there. There, it looks really good. Until in the evening, you notice at 6 o'clock that suddenly every single light in the place comes on. And then at 10 o'clock, every single light goes off. The thing is, it's all a facade. It's a pretend building. It's just there. It looks like great, but it's actually made of nothing. It's no different to one of these Hollywood sort of Western streets, you know, where they've got all the shop fronts, but there's nothing behind. And that's exactly what the people of Israel, of, of Judah and Jerusalem were saying as far as God's concerned. This pride of yours, this scheme of yours, this, this great facade you put out about who and where and why, what you've done, your alliance with Egypt, your peace treaty you've got with, with Israel, it's all bunkum as far as God's concerned. It's a facade. 
because there's only one sure foundation and God says this very clearly and this verse is quoted again and again in the New Testament see I lay in Zion a tested stone a precious cornerstone guess who Jesus and here is Isaiah again in the midst of this awful sin of God's people giving them that assurance, the hope of one who would come, one in whom they can have absolute faith. That's what Paul meant when he wrote, he said, I preach to you and there is only one foundation and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Peter preached about it and then Paul writes about it and Peter also refers to these same verses. The one who trusts in him will never be dismayed. And what Isaiah is saying, well, look, if you guys just look around you and understand that there are some wise people, just just think about a farmer, he said. They know what to do. They know when to plough. They know when to sow. They know what to sow. And not only that, they know how to harvest. So who taught them? Well, God teaches them. Who gives them the wisdom to do that? They have learned it from God. God tells them, Now's the time to sow. Now's the time to plough. Now And how to harvest. You, you don't harvest different grains, different crops in, in the same way. You have a different way for each crop. And if you read the verses there, it tells you that they were doing that. Well, now comes the next one of these woes, this, this terrible destruction which is now pronounced on Ariel. Now, the word Ariel is, is another name for Jerusalem. And strangely enough, it means blood on the altar. Well, that's a strange name to give to the people or the name of the city. And yet that's exactly what it means. Because Jerusalem was the place where blood flowed constantly from the altar in the temple. And yet God is saying that Jerusalem with that name, will be like an altar. He said, you will be besieged, Jerusalem. You will be surrounded. It may be the Assyrians who come, but it will be God's doing. God is in control here. God will bring that army. I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn. She will be be to me like an altar. There you go, an altar. And if you read the New Living Translation, it says an altar of blood. I will encamp against you all around. I will encircle you. God says, I'll do all this. You know, sometimes in our lives, God has to do this kind of stuff. God has to beat almost like an enemy towards us to make us wake up to realize that he's truly God. I spoke last week about God disciplining those he loves. God chastising us. Sometimes he has to give us a wake-up call, and that's what he's doing to these people. But he said, your enemies are going to be blown away. I'll sort them out, he said. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder, earthquake, great noise, with a windstorm, tempest, flames of devouring fire. Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her in a fortress and beseech her, will be as with a dream. Well, what happened was this. You'll be stunned. You'll be absolutely amazed at how God sorted this problem out. Can you see an army of 150,000 or a couple of hundred thousand people around uh, Jerusalem with uh, siege mounds and every conceivable way of attacking? Well, be stunned, he says. Blind yourselves, be sightless, be drunk. 
actually happened was this, as God acted. That night, the angel of the Lord went out, the Bible says, and he put to death, listen to this, 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. The old Bible says, and when they got up in the morning, they were all dead men. <laughs> That's one of the things that kids in the old days used to really laugh about, the, uh, the, uh, the King James Bible. Well, what happened? Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and he withdrew. He went back to Nineveh and his sons killed him. What had God said? You'll be stunned at what I do. So it wasn't that the Egyptians or anybody else could help them, but it was God who said, well, first of all, I'm going to put you in such a circumstance where there is no escape, no way out. You'll be encircled by all of these enemies and you'll say, who can possibly help? Well, the answer has to be only that God can help you. God can save you. God can do it. No one else can do it. Only God. There's not too many of us have ever been in such a circumstance. There's not too many of us have been in such a desperate strait where we realize that the only solution to our circumstance is for God to work. And yet that's exactly what he did here. He did it. But God says, you lot, you come near me and you sing these lovely songs, Father, Father. And I listened to some of the words we sang. I don't know all those songs very well. And I can't quote them, but I thought if only that were true. If only it were true in our lives that what we are singing is in fact a reality. But God was saying to those people, will you do the same? You come near to me with your mouth, you honor me with your lips. But the problem is, what's the Bible say? Your heart is really far from me. You're thinking about the footy. You're thinking about going surfing this afternoon. You're thinking about going off on a bike chair like I do. You're thinking about something like that. Your hearts are not there. Their worship really is made up of simply following some rules that men make. Now Jesus said that to the Pharisees. He said that to the people of his day. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You just play a game. You front up, you show up on Sunday, you do this, you do that. But really, your heart's not there. It's just your lips saying things. Your heart's not really in it. God says, that doesn't please me one little bit. And now he says these things. He comes to the leaders of Jerusalem. Do you think you can hide your schemes, your plans from God? Do you think God's far away? Do you think God can't see? Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from God, who, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You think you're wiser and better than God. You turn things upside down as if a potter were thought to be the clay. I mean, we sing that song, Have thine own way, Lord. You are the potter. I am the clay. But in our reality, in our lives, we are basically saying, I'm the potter. And we're asking God to accept what we plan and scheme and do. How can you do that? This is a really practical thing. But you see, God's got his plans. And he says, 
the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the humble and needy will rejoice. That sounds a bit like um, Jesus. They will see the work of my hands. They will keep my name holy. They will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Then there was a bunch of rebellious children. Now, I don't envy Isaiah. Because Isaiah is standing there and he is saying, Destruction is certain for, 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 for. It's not a pleasant message to give. But for a rebellious people, it's the only message to give. And yet when people will respond to the word and respond to God, there's a very positive message. You see, these are the people who were trusting their own understanding. He said, you make plans that are contrary to my will. You weave a web of plans that are not by my spirit. Without consulting me, you've gone down to Egypt to find help. You've put your trust in Pharaoh for his protection. But God says it's completely misplaced. In trusting Pharaoh, you will be humiliated and disgraced. He will not help you even one little bit. There's an interesting little aside in that where God says, can you see that, that line of donkeys going down to Egypt? See them crossing the desert where there's lions and there's snakes? See them? They're carrying your gold to Egypt to try and bribe the king of Egypt to come and help you. He's going to say thank you very much. And he's not going to do a single thing. His promises are worthless. And friends, when we trust in, what's the Bible say? The arm of the flesh. When we trust in man. When we trust in people. We trust in a government. We trust in a company. Without bringing God into the equation... What were those first verses I gave you? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And they were not doing so. Your sin is very clear. You are a children unwilling to listen to God's instruction. They say to their seers, that's to their Isaiahs, Tell us nice things. Give us a good sermon. Prophesy dreams, illusions. Give us, give us hope. Give us something nice. Don't, don't get on with this sort of stuff. You keep banging us with destruction is certain for. Don't do it, they say. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel telling us about God. Tell us about us and how good we are and the power of What's that other thing? Positive thinking. Yeah, that's what the kind of message we want. Well, Isaiah says, there is a way. This is the message I have to give you. In repentance and rest, resting in God, there is salvation. In quietness and confidence or trust is strength. You know, I had that verse on my wall for a long time. In, in quietness and confidence is your strength. But it's only part of the verse. It's only part of the truth. The first part of the truth is essential. 
That would be a great message, a great positive message. In quietness and trust is your strength. But I can't just say that. I have to say this too. In repentance. And turning to God. And relying totally on God. That's the secret. Then I can tell you in quietness and trust is your strength. But you, you, you wouldn't have a bit of it. You said no. We're going to get on our horses. We're going to shoot off down to Egypt. We're going to use their chariots. But God says through Isaiah, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. You know he does. He rises to show you compassion. The Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. But why would you go to Egypt? How gracious he will be when you cry for help. You know, friends, if I can give you a positive message, it's this one. God is waiting. God is waiting for you to cry to him for help in your circumstance, whatever that circumstance is. Don't go rushing here or trying to sort it out yourself. Cry to God. He is waiting. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Now, if that's not a positive message, I don't know what is. And that's really what Isaiah is saying. And I love this because it's been part of my life for all of my life. Whether you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, wouldn't this be comforting? This is the way. Walk in it. We're not left to our own resources. We've got a God who cares. Well, the final one for us today is chapter 31. Now you can go back home. In, of course, I've skipped over an awful lot of scriptures, as you can see. But in our half an hour to do four chapters like this, we find it difficult. All right. He pronounces woe on those who are determined to look to others for help. No matter what Isaiah has said, what God has said, they are still absolutely determined to go to Egypt. Now, if you read in Jeremiah, you'll find exactly the same thing. They came to Jeremiah and they said, Jeremiah, ask the Lord what we should do. Okay, I will, but I know you won't listen. Oh, we'll listen to you. We'll do what you tell us. Whatever you tell us, we'll do. You read Isaiah, I think uh, Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 41, 42. And when you read that, Jeremiah says, Nah, you guys aren't sincere. You just tell me to go and talk to God and get the word from God. And, and I bring the word from God to you. You won't listen. You won't obey. Yeah, well, we will. We will. We promise we will. We will. We will. So he goes to God. He comes back. Don't go to Egypt. And he brings it to the message to the people. Don't go to Egypt. You're lying. God didn't tell you that. And so next minute they bundle Jeremiah up and cart him off to Egypt. And guess what? They all died down there. So did Jeremiah, because they refused to listen to God. But these people are no different. Are we any different? Do we still determine to do what we want to do? Do we still depend on our own understanding, our own ability, our own thinking, our own plans, and we've already got it worked out, this is what we're going to do? Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots, in the great strength. You do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from him. Now therein lies the problem. You do not look to the Holy One of Israel because God alone 
Isaiah is saying, is the only one you can trust. He is wise. Or he can bring disaster, don't worry, he can. He does not take back his words, unlike the Egyptians. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion. The Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield and deliver it. He will pass over it. He will rescue it. That sort of rung a bell, shouldn't it? Pass over. They should remember what God had done. Well, friends, we've come to the end of that segment, and I'm sorry I've rushed through it, but there's four very important chapters. But I want to ask you, what lessons do you then learn out of this? How can you then apply this to your circumstance in life? You want to buy a car? Well, you're pretty clever. You can work out what kind of car you want. But isn't it better to say, Lord, keep me from buying a lemon? Lord, I need to buy a car, I need one with seven seats or six seats or three or where, and I simply ask you to help me in all of your ways, acknowledge him. Buying a house, in all your ways, acknowledging him. In every plan in your life, in all of your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. You know, the scriptures tell us again and again that this is the pathway. Romans 12 says, and verse 2, if you do certain things, in other words, you offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice, then you will know the perfect will of God. And the perfect will of God is always good. It's the best possible way for you. It's something that you really need to know. Now, I'm sorry I've gone a couple of minutes over time, but can I say to you that these words from Isaiah are so practical in terms of your life and my life that we need to go out of this place determined, from this point on, I am determined to live according to the will of God. Now, you may have great schemes, but unless you have given it to God and asked God to take control in the circumstance then Isaiah's message of rebellion and willfulness really foretell disaster or judgment for you. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is what the Word of God does to us. It tells us that there is a clear pathway, and that is to trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we look into your word and as we come through these chapters of Isaiah, sometimes it's pretty hard to understand. But when we look behind what Isaiah is saying and the circumstances in which he's saying it, it becomes starkly clear that here were a people claiming to be the people of God whose lives were actually denying him. Paul wrote about that in the book of Titus where he says, they acknowledge me with their lips, but they deny me by deny me by their actions. Lord, we want to be a people who not only acknowledge you and sing your praise, but who then live lives of obedience and submission and are a people who in all of our ways acknowledge you so that you may direct our paths. We pray, Lord, that the grace of our Lord Jesus will be with each of us, that every one of us will experience to its fullest the love of God infilling us and then moving out from within us to touch other lives. 
and that every one of us will know what it is to walk in step with the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit each day until Jesus comes. We give you thanks in his name. Amen. So God